should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Hello and welcome. Welcome to Little Friday, or I should say Thursday. <laughs> it's December 10th. And I'm Michelle Miao, your host. Fong, our producer, is in studio. Hey, Michelle, how are you? You know, I'm hanging in there. I mean, I've been fighting this cold that's been going around. It's nasty, so that explains the frog in the throat. Sorry, listeners. I know. You hear me, like, trying to clear my throat. Yeah, I had to cut some of them out. I'm like, poor listeners. Yeah, sorry, Fong. Sorry, listeners. Um, but, you know, that's what's going around, and, and that's what it is. Uh, but I, I promise you that I'm germ-free and uh, taking tons of vitamin C. So um, for everyone out there, you know, tis a season. Make sure you stay warm and take care of yourself, drink lots of uh, liquids, and take uh, some vitamins mm-hmm. uh, to keep yourself healthy. Uh, <laughs> so, um, you know, what I'm excited about is the uh, the fact that um, we covered Danish Girl. I, I talked about Danish Girl and how I had the chance to sit down with the director, Tom Hooper. Um, yeah, who's done Les Miserables. And, you know, he's just uh, he's a beautiful filmmaker and he's very, very focused uh, and, and does a, a great job mm-hmm. producing and directing period films. And so... He did The Danish Girl, which uh, stars Eddie Redmayne and uh, Alicia Vikander. Um, And Eddie plays a transgender woman who undergoes gender reassignment surgery in the 30s. So literally this woman is a pioneer, Lily Elba. Um, It's an incredible film. I mean, there's been some criticism, for Mm -hmm. sure, about, you know, casting and the uh, continued casting of cisgender men to play transgender women. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, you cannot ignore... Uh, you cannot ignore, you really cannot ignore Eddie Redmayne's performance. He wow. is just incredible. So if you have a chance, please go see it this weekend. Yeah, definitely. Mm, I'll put it on one of my top lists. You should. And there's also another film. I mean, it's like the year of LGBTQI <laughs> films. Um, Kate Blanchett and uh, Rooney Mara star in the, uh, the, fil- uh, the movie Carol. And it's about this young photographer who falls for this woman, who uh, older woman who's going through a divorce. Mm. So, you know, for, for the lesbians out there. But, I mean, <laughs> really for everyone, but I, I'm just happy that there's a lesbian-themed film. So You're like, go see these films. Go see these films. <laughs> Pack um, those houses. Yes, <laughs> yes. And, you know, and, and uh, the, it's, it's really the right season to kind of, you know, go and watch movies as we wind down the year. Um, so speaking of movies and and stuff like that, are you a Harry Potter fan? Uh, yeah, I want to say yeah. I just didn't read all the books, but I watch all the movies. <laughs> yeah, you did. Okay. Um, I <laughs> there are a lot of Harry Potter fans out there. Are you uh, one? E- <laughs> 
Anyway, you gotta call me out here. <laughs> um, you know, I'm I'm gonna be I'm gonna I'm gonna be my the cynical part of me, and I lost my imagination. Uh, oh. you know, maybe ten years ago, um, oh. I used to be into the you know fantasy type stuff and Wizards, sci-fi. And, no, oh. and yeah, yeah, I was. I, I really, I was really into that stuff. As you know, but um. I don't know. I guess life happens, but it doesn't mean that I'm not excited for our guest today. So let's get our program started. Today's show is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Our guest today is an actor and also the writer and creator of, uh, yes, a a Harry Potter parody. (laughs) It's awesome. It's called Potted Potter. And um, the New York Times called it gloriously goofy. And I'm really excited that it will be here. or It is here at the uh, Palace of Fine Art. So let's welcome Dan Clarkson to the program. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. How are you doing? Well, I am hanging in there. I can't wait for the weekend. (laughs) (laughs) I know how you feel. Well, no, I'm actually all right. I have three shows at the weekend, so weekends are the hard time for me. Yeah, yeah. So Potted Potter, you know, it's uh, it's playing to sold-out houses all over the world. Obviously, there is an audience for those who are really into the whole Harry Potter thing. But tell us about Potted Potter, uh, this parody. Yeah, well, um, what we're trying to do is we do all seven books in 70 minutes. Um, it's a two-hander sort of comedy. Um, Jeff plays Harry Potter, which is the guy I work with, which leaves me playing all 380 other characters. So I play everyone from Voldemort to Hermione Granger, and being a six-foot-five guy, <laughs> I play a very good 11-year-old schoolgirl. <laughs> I mean, perfect for someone like you who's never read the book because now you don't have to. We'll literally do it all for you in 70 minutes. That's perfect. That's why I got to go see it. And, you know, and so, all right. So talk to us about this. uh, You've got to have an incredible imagination to be able to play all of those characters, unless you're seriously invested in the whole Harry Potter thing. Well, I think more you have to just be a very selfish actor, and I don't like sharing props and costumes (laughs) with people, so I just want to do it all myself. And, you know, you can look at someone, say, like Alan Rickman, who plays Snape in the films, and that's all he gets to do. I get to play Snape and Voldemort and Hermione, and, you know, I I think it just shows what a versatile actor I am. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, exactly. (laughs) I just, you know, that's the uh, most honest answer I think anyone's ever given us here on the program. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the show, it's its its not meant to be for any one age. I mean, I think that it's even perfect for, you know, kids uh, ages six to, I guess, here in the press release, it says to Dumbledore, who's yeah, well, very absolutely. old. <laughs> I mean, very similar to the books, because obviously these were sort of books written for kids but then sort of got caught up with adults and have a very sort of adult theme and were enjoyed by everyone. And so we really try and do that with the show. So we say we really play to a family audience. And it's great. I mean, last night we had a show in Chicago and I had a sort of eight-year-old birthday party was sat there with a bachelorette party just behind them, all dressed up as wizards, all of them laughing and enjoying it. So it was great (laughs) to see that real mix of audience. (laughs) Um, So as a kid and now as an adult, have you ever been into magic and fantasy and things like that? I I have to say I am. I, I would say I'm a closet geek, but I don't think when you're doing a show about Harry Potter, you're very much in the closet about that. You know, I'm quite an obvious geek. I mean, I'm very excited that Star Wars is coming out in literally next week. So I'm I'm very into the whole sort of fantasy sci-fi stuff. 
And I mean, I was queuing up for the books when they first came out and pushing children out the way to get to them first. <laughs> <laughs> Which worries me because that was almost 18 years ago. So those kids are now probably grown up and going to hunt me down. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so, you know, speaking of Harry Potter uh, and, uh, yeah, you know, Daniel Radcliffe is Harry Potter to some mm. people. They can't separate him. Um, do you think that, uh, I mean, what, what do you have on Daniel Radcliffe uh, you know, well, when I mean, you play Harry? I don't Harry? play Harry Potter, but Jeff, I really think if you squint and look the other way, uh, he looks just like Harry Potter. Um, <laughs> as the years go by, he's resembling more Elton John, but, you know, that's still <laughs> a good thing. <laughs> that's that's hilarious. That's hilarious. <laughs> uh, you know, one thing I did. I mean, in all seriousness, you know that what I love about uh, fantasy, and uh, I really got to get into it because what I meant when I said I lost that, you know, I lost the the whole that whole part of me due to the fact that I became an adult and I realized that these adult issues are so depressing. Um, that I kind of got lost in that. Uh, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, no, absolutely. But then that's when things like fantasy and parody really, you know, it, it's a horrible world out there at the moment. Sometimes it's just nice to escape from it all and, and have these great stories where good versus evil and good triumphs through magic and sort of, it, it, it's just, it, it's a nice escapism. And we sort of have the same with our show. It's just 70 minutes of really having good fun and enjoying yourselves. We sort of have a live game of Quidditch in the show, which we have grown men physically hurling quaffles and balls around trying to score goals and literally just forgetting about life for 70 minutes and having a great time. That is so awesome. We're speaking with Daniel Clark Clarkson. He is the uh, producer and writer of Potted Potter, and it's here in San Francisco. It opens up this weekend, right? Yeah. Um, I think we come in on the 18th. The 18th, and uh, it's uh, where is it playing at? It's playing at a theatre. <laughs> the, the Palace of Fine Arts. Uh, that sounds yes. great. That's where we're going to be. <laughs> I just um, got on a plane and I'm pointed in the right direction. Um, so you're a two-time Olivier Award-nominated, you know, actor, uh, and uh, you know, so you've been obviously doing this for for a while and and very successful at it. Um, you know, what? I, I guess you love your job. I mean, yeah. Oh, very much. I mean, I get a great job. I get to dress up as wizards and then uh, we have a couple of other shows at the moment we're doing potted sherlock so i get to dress up as victorian detectives um we had a show about pirates so i get to dress up as, i literally like dressing up as other people mm-hmm. and, you know i mean my mum tells everyone that i'm a lawyer but you know that's fine we can get by that. <laughs> are you are you a lawyer like at night time maybe yeah, yeah, I could be. I think I'd be a great lawyer. I, I watch a lot of L.A. law, so I think, you know, I could blag it. What's been the greatest response from some of your fans? Maybe some, maybe some from your younger fans. Oh, what I think the best one we ever had was a um, Harry Potter website said that we do the jokes the fans would say themselves. And that, for me, was one of the greatest compliments that we sort of, because it is very much a loving sort of homage to the show. Mm-hmm. And we or to the book, sorry, and we really try to be as respectful as we can to it. But then during the show, we get a lot of um, we get a couple of kids up on stage, and sometimes where our minds sort of work from A to B to C, kids' minds can go from A to F to E, and some of the things they'll say live on stage, you just can't predict them. Mm-hmm. And so we can often have a lot of fun with them when they, they sort of you have to be on your toes, which gives a sort of fresh ad lib to the show. I don't think any show's ever been the same, which is great. 
And uh, do you ever get anyone who might be upset that it, you know it's 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 different? It's it's not the actual Harry Potter, or or that it's all Harry Potter and you know seven books in seventy minutes. Yeah, so far no. So far, everyone seemed to enjoy it. Touchwood, um, and everyone seems to sort of come along and see the spirit it is in. Because I think we are both Harry Potter fans, and I think you know if you're going to parody something, you have to be a fan. Otherwise, it has the danger of becoming sort of a bit bitter and twisted. It's why I would never parody Twilight. I just burn those books, but you know that's just between me and you. Don't tell him. <laughs> Twilight. Well, I you, you okay. I did read Twilight. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Oh, ruined <laughs> vampires for everyone. They shouldn't be all sparkly. <laughs> um, you know, and and I'm sure you've traveled all over in doing Potted Potter and mm. seen you know quite a diverse audience for that yeah. matter. Um, I, I I tend to find that you know with uh, the kids are growing up too fast these days. What do you think? of that statement um i absolutely agree i think i mean i still think everyone should let their inner child out all the time and there's this tendency that they all have to be there on their iphones and they all have to be sort of wearing the makeup and where it's like be kids have fun and so really with this show it's great to see that and especially one of my favorite things is when you get say these sort of 13 14 year old age group where they're trying not to enjoy it, trying to be too cool for school, and then finally the smile starts to crack. And by the end of it, they're just laughing along, and you can see that sort of inner child coming out, which is always a great thing to watch in an audience. <laughs> now, when you're here in San Francisco, by the way, at the Palace of Fine Arts, um, you're, the shows are running from December to basically you know, the first weekend of January. That's a mm. lot of shows. Yeah. I mean, how do you, and you're playing all these different roles, uh, how do you do it? <laughs> um, it, it? It's a great workout. It means I can eat whatever I want for Christmas, which is always a nice thing. Um, it, it's like you're saying, a lot of vitamin C and a lot of rest and, you know, don't enjoy the nightlife too much. Uh, and, uh, I mean, do you do you have a family? Uh, I, I guess mentally and emotionally, how do you, or, but then you love what you do. I, I, what yeah. am I talking about? Yeah, and, you know, we're, you're sort of a family on the people you tour with. I mean, yeah. obviously, my um, Jeff is my comedy partner. Um, his girlfriend calls me his second wife anyway because <laughs> of the amount of time we spend together sort of on the road. And then you have your stage crew and your sort of um, understudies, and everyone becomes a big family together, and so you all sort of share in. And, and it can be tough over Christmas, obviously, because you miss your family back home, but you sort of create your own sort of on-the-road family. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what do you and really what a great like? Place to be is San Francisco. It's San Francisco. You know, you can't that's argue right. With that, that I get to be in San Francisco for Christmas and New Year. That's right. Uh, so what do you really like? You know, outside of uh, being magical during Potted Potter, are, are you are you funny? I mean, I guess you made me you made me laugh this morning. That, that, that's I'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm nonstop hilarity. Um, <laughs> Usually I'm asleep outside the show. That, that, that's what I do. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Hey, we're going to take a quick break right here, but when we come back, I want to dive into uh, just uh, you know being in San Francisco and talk to you a little bit about uh, magic here in San Francisco. Is that all right? Amazing. Yeah, of course. The Michelle Miao Show continues right after this. Don't go away.
Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us here on Little Friday. Little Friday is pretty much, you know, it's Thursday, but I just feel like, you know, who works on Friday anyway? (laughs) It's time to enjoy the weekend, and we are definitely starting that with our guest today, Daniel Clarkson, who is the creator and uh, one of the writers of Potted Potter. And it's coming here to San Francisco for all you Harry Potter fans. It's a new, different way to experience Harry Potter and all in 70 minutes with uh, the very funny Dan here. Dan, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. So I had to bring this up. I mean, you know, I, I think Harry Potter became so successful that, of course, there has to be a lot of haters out there. Um, and, 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 you know, one that we talk a lot sometimes would be the the controversy that uh, some Christian groups have raised um, over the use of magic uh, in yeah. this the whole thing and it being, you know, witchcraft or, or something mm-hmm. like that. Obviously, a fan of Harry Potter and carrying, you know, the culture on. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I know. I mean, here's a story about a guy who dies and then rises again. I mean, it's just where would they want to get on board with something like that? Um, sorry, that was very sarcastic of me. I think, <laughs> I, I think it's it's you know it's it's a children's story. It's like where does it stop? Do you sort of start banning fairy stories because there's a witch in there who uses magic powers or? You know, it's it's fantasy. It's not meant to be real, and it's in no way, I think, meant to be offending anybody. Yeah. And I think if you take it at the level of just a great story that tells you about good and evil and you take the morals from that, then I think there's a lot to be learned from it. Yeah, exactly. Well, right before the break, um, I mentioned, you know, San Francisco, and, uh, you know, and I just wanted to know, um, what do you like about San Francisco? Where have you been so far? I, I, I actually, I'm not even in San Francisco yet. I arrive on at the weekend, and I've never been there before. But I'm really excited to the point I've just booked my Alcatraz tour. You are really excited. 
I yeah. mean, because <laughs> if that's the first thing you did, um, then then that really means you're coming here for the first time. So I'm always interested for those who are, you know, uh, outside of San Francisco. So I've been here for a really long time and I've seen you know, different faces change over time. Uh, kind of what is your your perception of what San Francisco is like today? Um, I've sort of because I've been to California a lot and I stayed some time in L.A. and I sense you guys are sort of just a lot more chilled out than L.A. in a good way. And everything I know is from the movies, and it's the hills, and it's the trams, and it's sort of the Golden Gate Bridge and that view from when everyone sits up. You know, every movie, there seems to be that scene where you're all sitting up on a hill watching the sun rise <laughs> over the Golden Gate Bridge, and they go, that's San Francisco. <laughs> and so I'm looking forward to doing all of that. And so expectations are high because it's somewhere I've really wanted to go. And the great thing about when you've created a show is you can choose where you want to go on the tour. Well, it so is straight away. It, I'd go San Francisco. I'd like to go there, please. Yeah, exactly. It's it's quite a magical place, and uh, you know, lots of people look at it as you know, the gateway to the gays. Mm. I mean, how does that make you feel? Absolutely fine with that. Great. <laughs> I mean, you know, right. um, I hear I have to put flowers in my hair, according to the song. Yeah. <laughs> you know, LGBTQI people are huge fans of, of fantasy, and uh, I'm guessing also huge fans of Harry Potter. Mm. Um, and uh, and I, I, I don't know, you know, I think that a lot of fantasy kind of plays on this ambiguous uh, sexual orientation yeah. uh, situation. Well, I mean, Rowling outed Dumbledore a few years ago. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, that's one of the main characters, I think, one of the most famous wizards of all time. Do you find it funny, though, I mean, for someone who's visiting San Francisco, that there's there's such controversy around things like this? Um, no, yeah, I find, I think someone visiting um, the USA on the whole, they can often, I, I find it, I, I just don't see why there needs to be any controversy on any of it. You know, it's like, it's, I have a very live and let live policy, and that might be because I've grown up in the arts and I've grown up around theater, and it's, you know, let everybody be who they want to be. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly, yeah. uh, which is great, and, and I and I love that that you think that way because you're also someone that will influence, you know, children and uh, and things like that. So speaking of San Francisco, as we wind down our conversation, I mean, one of the things that I think you should definitely do is have a uh, burrito. All right, done. I'm I'm actually writing that on my list now. Yes, so we're, burrito and Alcatraz. We're very Not snobby very about the, the burrito thing. You know, yeah, where, where do I need to have one from? Though? Well, it's just, this is hard because then I'd be outing myself as, a, a, you know, I guess having a favorite. And, yeah. and, and I don't want to do that, but I'll give you some <clears throat> tips or hints. La Taqueria, um, you know, in the mission yeah. uh, has been awarded as one, one of the best burritos in the entire country by some woman who ate over 400 burritos and writes a blog. You know how wow. important they are. Yes. 400 burritos? <laughs> Well, yes. never mind my job. That's the new job I want. That's amazing. Right. Yeah. It is the place where any, you know, buddy can be somebody here in San Francisco. Yeah. But uh, she, she, her measurements or how she measured, you know, a, a burrito included things like liquid ratio, um, girth of the burrito. I'm not joking. <laughs> well, that's very important with a burrito. I've never given it that much thought other than can it get into my mouth quickly? <laughs> That yeah. would be my test of a good burrito. Right. But, you know, if she's had 400, who am I to argue with her? <laughs> um, one of the other things, I guess, you, I mean, if you're, you, you'll have to do, in my opinion, as a, uh, as a local, um, 
the Alcatraz thing, I mean, sure, you know, as a tourist, you absolutely uh, have got to do that. But if you find yourself in a Castro, of course, you know, it's a gay neighborhood. Um, We have a sports bar now. Oh. Yeah, that's exciting. Yeah. Uh, I like sports. Yay, sports. (laughs) Still trying to get my head around half the sports out here. Yeah. Um, And and there's actually some, uh, you know, magic parlors, too. Um, Okay. A good friend of mine, Walt, does a magic show um, uh, that's... Downtown Union Square. I mean, you know, it's you get it's your first time. You you have a lot of weekends to explore it. I'm I'm having fun with you now. <laughs> no, no, this is good. I'm writing all of this down. So if I'm going to go and see Walt's Magic Show in Union Square and eat a burrito that the woman who ate too many burritos ever <laughs> that you should eat really to stay healthy. <laughs> I mean, 400 burritos. That's, that's more than one a day for a year. Yeah, I, I I'm I. I don't know. Maybe she eats them and throws them up. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you should be kind of sick of burritos. <laughs> well, you know, Dan, I'm really excited uh, for Potted Potter, and I think it's a, a great, uh, you know, thing here during the season when people are out watching shows. So thank you for bringing this to San Francisco. No, thank you very much for having us. Really looking forward to coming there. And what a great time to be here with Christmas and New Year. Yes. So just to remind everyone, Potted Potter is the hit, Harry Potter parody that will be at the Palace of Fine Arts Theater from December 19th through January 3rd. And it's basically all seven Harry Potter books in 70 hilarious minutes. Um, so look it up, Potted Potter, and get your tickets today. Tickets, uh, Ticket prices range from $39.99 to $99.99. And it's available online at Ticketfly.com. Uh, Dan, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, hopefully we'll see much. you soon. Looking forward to it. Thanks very much. Right. Have a great day. You too. Enjoy your weekend. Bye. Bye. I'm Heclina. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for almost 20 years. And uh, over the past couple of months, I just opened up my club, Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now because the city has been changing a lot. I always had this attitude of of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody and that's just kind of the attitude and the, the, uh, the ethics of Oasis is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know, you know, it's funny because I still need, I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true, you know what I mean? Like I walk in there and and I go up to the bar and I go, oh, can I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like, I forget that it's my place. Running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that gay people now, they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be in a gay bar all the time. So you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I, I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it, I work really hard at what I do. I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like to, like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll, they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? This has always been my attitude, um, just to entertain people. And so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity. 
and, uh, and you know, don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for you. Spotlight on success and achievement. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us here. Um, Michelle Meow, your host. And uh, yeah, the first half of the show was pretty fun and just playing around with Harry Potter. I know you guys are big Harry Potter fans. Just maybe some of you are closeted about it, and that's okay. Uh, but we're going to switch gears now and um, talk about something that, uh, you know, we, we're what you're probably much more used to when tuning in to the Progressive Voices Network. Um, and uh, let's talk. Let's talk about something a little bit serious here. In the uh, latest uh, CDC report, there's been some findings um, regarding HIV that's pretty disturbing, uh, such as an increase in infection among gay men of color. And so here to discuss the overall findings is the one of the editors at large at uh, my favorite publication on LGBT news, by the way, The Advocate, <laughs> Diane Anderson Minchel. Diane, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Michelle. Uh, so very alarming, you know, this statement of saying that uh, there are some some statistics that we're not really talking about. And the, the fact that there is an increase in infection among gay men of color uh, and compared to heterosexuals. Uh, which, you know, the percentage of the, the diagnosis there is down. Let's talk about, you know, this increase. How bad is it? Um, well, you know, it's, it's bad, basically. Uh, you know, it, there's, there's parts where it looks like it could be stabilizing, but if you're talking about uh, for gay and bi black men, they account for 10,000 of the 40,000 new HIV diagnosed cases each year. So, uh, you know, Stabilizing at ten thousand is is uh, not a good reason to celebrate, just because those are those are already high and alarming numbers. So, but we've seen over the past decade, sort of, uh, you know, this trend towards um, gay and bi men of color, uh, you know, their HIV rates going up, especially among younger people. So this is one of the the cases where. Uh, among both black and Latino, gay and bi men between the ages of 13 and 24, researchers found an 87% rise in new HIV diagnosis uh, oh. since 2005, uh, which is, you know, about 30% higher than it is for their white counterparts. So it, you have this widening racial gap when it comes to uh, HIV and AIDS. So if you're looking, you know, this is a, a good way to, to look at it. I've got a couple of numbers, I think, that, that are always good to keep in mind. So black, gay, and bi men are 70 time, 72 times more likely to get HIV than someone in the general population, whereas white, gay, and bi men are only 40 times more likely. So you're talking about, you know, gradations of, of pretty alarming numbers. And if nothing changes in what we're doing and how we're reaching uh, black and uh, Latino men, uh, we know that six in ten black, particularly black, gay, and bi men will be HIV positive by the time they're forty, if nothing changes. So you know the media does this a lot. Yeah, sometimes they they kind of want to pick and choose what they want to report. And so there had been some upbeat reporting, as this article had stated on the Advocate from the CDC. Um, but um, but obviously for the this particular statistic, it, it's so alarming. We're not picking it up on major mainstream reporting. Why do you think that is? 
Well, I think it's one of those things that are, you know, it's, it's a bit buried in the numbers, and so people want to see the positive in all of these numbers. It, it does give some hope to see these positive changes. Uh, if, and there are positive changes for people of color, actually. Uh, African-American women, uh, generally straight African-American women, cisgender, are uh, half as likely, you know, their rates went down by almost 50%. So you have, you know, you have great uh, strides being made for African-American women. But for uh, gay and by african american men, it's just not the same thing. But I think that part of the reason why the media doesn't pick up those numbers is because it's such a complex issue. You can't really unpack the whole. It's not easy to compile in one little, like, neat soundbite or one little neat, uh, you know, pullout that's going to get you a lot of uh, traffic. Because in order to talk about gay and by uh, men, black gay and by men, uh, you know, and their HIV rates, you have to talk about a lot of sort of uh, the intersections that create those things, like the discrimination and poverty and stigma and lack of access to health care. And those are just not, uh, you know, sexy things for the media to pick up on. They're just more complex and nuanced. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think that that's, that's one of the main reasons why it doesn't get picked up. You mentioned 6 and 10. Uh, I, you know, I know that the advocate is planning on addressing the lack of, I guess, you know, information that's out there regarding this issue. Uh, Talk to us about 6 and 10. Sure. Uh, We actually just did a series called 6 and 10, um, which really focused on, uh, you know, again, black gay and bi men and HIV, what the numbers mean, what the problems are, what needs to be done. Uh, And really, it's it's, it's an interesting series. It's kind of, uh, it follows up on, a number of pieces that we've been doing in our sister publication, Plus Magazine, which is our HIV magazine for people living with HIV. We've done a series there on uh, the intersections around African Americans and HIV. And, um, and then The Advocate 6 and 10 is kind of a, a, you know, a serialized follow-up on that that's specifically uh, for both HIV-negative and HIV-positive readers. So... And we really explore one of the things people like will take away. If in mainstream media, what people will get was the soundbite is you know gay and bi men who are African American are much more likely to have HIV, and that's what they'll take away from it. They'll they'll take away oh well there must be something that they're doing wrong you know because that's mm-hmm. the first thing in our sort of stigmatized world where people will go with HIV. But actually, for um, black gay men. <clears throat> It's actually a very nuanced, uh, you know, situation because we actually know there's no one single fact you can point to as being this is the cause. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we do know there's a lot of things where, uh, you know, uh, black African, uh, sorry, I keep saying both, I'm so tired. Uh, so African-American, gay and bi men, uh, they use condoms more than white men. They use fewer drugs. They don't use, you know, poppers and party drugs in the same level that their white uh, gay and bi peers do. They actually get, they have higher rates of HIV testing in some regions. Uh, so, but I think that part of the, you know, when you're looking at the problems, the reasons what, what lead up to this is um, that you have, one of the main things is because uh, 
gay and bi men tend to date other people and have sexual relations with other people who are of the same race, which means that when you have more people who have HIV in one community and those people are dating each other, you're much more likely to be exposed to HIV. Mm-hmm. So if I'm a white gay man in Atlanta, this is a recent uh, study, if I'm a white gay man in Atlanta, it takes me seven sex partners before I encounter somebody who is HIV positive. Um, if I'm a black man in, who's gay in that same city, uh, it only takes me three and a half sex partners. I don't know how you get a half a partner, but you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I so do. the numbers are, the the numbers average are amusing, is, yeah. but they, they tell you basically. So you're more likely to encounter people who have HIV in your sexual relations. And then uh, we do know that uh, black gay men, a substantial portion of black gay men remain undiagnosed. And so anybody who's undiagnosed doesn't have access to medications. They aren't virally suppressed. And thus, you know, if they're having uh, sexual relations with somebody who isn't on PrEP or isn't using condoms, then they are exposing them to HIV. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's part of, you know, again, the, the, you know, there's so many more factors. Of course, HIV-positive black gay men are less likely to make $20,000 than white gay men. They're 50% less likely to have health insurance. So all of those things kind of limit access. But it's it's a little bit of what we call the perfect storm for, mm-hmm. for black gay and bi men right now in HIV. Now, information like this, I mean, it, you have to be extremely honest, um, especially if you're trying to get the, the information out there for educational purposes. And one of the things that we talk about all the time is the fact that, you know, if we don't have the ed- education out there, the proper education, then it's really hard to provide a solution for a situation like this. So as an editor, you know, for The Advocate, um, the largest uh, the, you know place to go to for LGBTQI news, um, I, I, I wonder if you that's where your head is head is at in terms of providing the raw numbers so that people in our community really have have the advocate for a tool, not just, you know, for entertainment or for just to get news, but that, that it could really change your life if you're reporting it the right way. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, this is actually something that the advocates really changed. Our whole organization has actually really this in the last year, uh, you know, really come together, um, like literally the editors of, of different brands have come together um, and talked about, you know, bringing in more, uh, reviving basically HIV journalism, you know, really reviving the focus on HIV, talking about it again. It's fallen off the wayside. Uh, especially in LGBT media, and uh, and we've always been the vanguards of you know of talking about HIV and AIDS, and so it's time for us to sort of revive that again. So for us, we've you know increased our really our coverage and our investigative journalism around it, um, and sort of giving out the raw information, which for sometimes for us is you know is talking about what it takes to be safe or what it, you know, the, the literal reality of mm-hmm. being safe and uh, the cost of, of doing particular things, but also, um, you know, again, how the fight against HIV is tied in with the fight against other things like youth homelessness or how it is, you know, it's tied in with, uh, you know, the uh, homophobia in black churches or 
for black, gay, and bi men face higher rates of HIV and higher rates of incarceration and how that, you know, when you're incarcerated, you're denied condoms, and so that creates a perfect storm there. So there's a lot about that that we've started to really in the last year just talk about across our all of our brands and especially in the advocate with our we, – we launched our biggest series last fall, which was our um, – 30 days of prep, and that was we spent, you know, we recognize, and I'm a huge proponent of prep, which mm-hmm. is pre-exposure prophylaxis, right. and um, and we really recognize this is one of the major prevention tools out there that is still not getting out to uh, certain populations, and in and I can say in particular gay and black, gay and bi black men are not getting PrEP at this time, and that's something we need to change. So we did this big series on PrEP. We had a story each day that uh, focused on some element of PrEP and also kind of um, eroding the myths that people have about um, PrEP and what it means and what it does to you and that kind of stuff. So I think what I do remember being at the U.S. Conference on AIDS and being in a panel that was largely African-American queer men um, and, you know, and then as well as people who care for them, social workers and, and clinicians and stuff and other activists. And, you know, we were talking about how difficult it was to get people on antiretroviral treatment when they're HIV positive, especially in the South. There, you know, there are many places where the funding isn't there, the research isn't there, the access to health care isn't there. And so, uh, so we were talking about the difficulties of that, and somebody said, well, what about PrEP, which, you know, our, is our main prevention tool right now. And, um, and I just remember one of the, you know, social workers standing up and saying, I can't even get sick people on medication. I just, mm-hmm. you know, with that, I can't even think about trying to get healthy people on medication. You know, I still got to try and get these sick people on medication. Um, so right. it kind of underscored how different it is, you know, the trajectory of the experience that we're having in the South around HIV and AIDS and how different it is from particular areas like San Francisco, which is, you know, of course, seeing a 20% decline in their numbers and which is seeing a huge uptick on on PrEP and also viral suppression. So um, a city like San Francisco is going to meet the uh, CDC goals of 90-90-90. Do you know what those are? No. Okay, so at the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, they have these new goals, 90-90-90, that a lot of uh, folks are working towards. And what they mean is 90% of the people who have HIV know that they have it, and then 90% of those people are on antiretroviral treatment, and then 90% of those people are virally suppressed or undetectable, meaning that there's such a low level of the virus in their blood that they can't actually pass HIV on to other people. And so, main, that's, you know, treatment as prevention has become one of the main uh, tools for lowering the number of HIV cases. It's what slows down the rate of HIV, you know, rates in an area, is if we get people who do have HIV on treatment, get them undetectable, um, then they can't pass it to anybody else. Right, so. right, right, right. Man, it's just like you know, unless you're you're really immersed into the the articles that are discussing this, um, this information isn't really out there. Uh, you know what I mean? Like it's it's mm-hmm. um it's not what what the the trending article would be when it comes to a discussion about HIV. Unfortunately, 
if you are someone who only plugs into mainstream media, I'm, I think that you would have a complete different perception about HIV AIDS and its impact. Yeah, I mean, I think we've done a good job of showing that HIV uh, is, you know, it's not this, uh, this horror, it's not AIDS. First of all, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of people for the longest time just thought of AIDS when they thought of HIV, um, and they thought of that period in the 80s and early 90s when all of our friends were dying and everybody got diagnosed and then died within, you know, days, weeks, months, and um, and that's not the situation in it, for the large part of America. The situation now is people have HIV. It's a chronic condition, so they're going to take medications for life, but those medications are going to make them have relatively long, healthy lives that are going to be on par with their peers. And so it's really good that we've been able to show that this is what it means to live with HIV now. The problem is, is we haven't shown what it's like for the people who haven't gotten to that. So uh, when we we don't show that the HIV crisis, uh, you know, below the Mason-Dixon line is, is uh, you know, is still significant and substantial and mm-hmm. um so I think that we, we don't show that kind of thing. And I think that's really part of the thing is, like, we've done a good job of showing uh, people living with HIV or just like everybody else. Um, everybody's got some kind of condition that they live with at some point of their lives. Um, you know, it's very, very common. Like, the 87% of us will be disabled within our lifetimes. So, um, so this is, you know, that kind of a thing. But I do think that, yeah, then you miss, you know, that... Um, you know, that you miss uh, what's happening in the South where people are still dying from HIV, uh, well, from AIDS once they convert. Um, Diane, I know that you mentioned um, earlier that you're tired, so I don't want to take up too much of your time. However, I do want you to come back on and I want to have like a much, you know, an in-depth discussion about a lot of things. So I have one last question for you and we'll let you go. And, you know, people are always asking, like, are we always going to need an LGBT specific publication? Um, you know, especially post marriage equality. I, I think the answer is yes. What about for you? I think the answer is yes too. Absolutely. Here's what I say: is you know, if you tell me the mainstream is lovely that it's been picking up our stories. It's lovely to see Ellen on People magazine and to see, you know, uh, ordinary people, uh, ordinary LGBT people getting married and uh, in, and um, and those stories being profiled in you know mainstream publications, that kind of thing. But the truth is, is the mainstream media, even the alternative mainstream media, like your weeklies, which are very usually very queer friends or trans friendly, um, those are never going to have the, you know, the space uh, or the interest in really comprehensively covering your life if you're a person who identifies as LGBTQ. Um, it's just like, you know, the breadth of the stories in our community, the, 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 the nuances of our life, and just sort of the wonderful variety that there is out there. Um, you know, one type of story about gay people is out there. One type of story about trans women is out there. Um, but there are, you know, as you know, thousands upon thousands of narratives about what it means to be trans or mm-hmm. gay or bi. And so LGBT media is what's going to cover that. I think as we become more and more mainstreamed, uh, as more, uh, you know, fewer, for example, fewer millennials are actually going to gay bars at this point, right? So right. we've become more and more mainstreamed. And I think at that point, though, you're still going to need some continuity around 
uh, your, you know, around your orientation and your uh, political identity as an LGBTQ person. So, and that's what you get from our media. I love it. I love it. Diane, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Thanks for having me. Diane Anderson Minchel, she's the editor for The Advocate. We're so lucky to have her on for just a little bit, but I promise we're going to make her come back and, and talk about some things. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year, with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face with today's thought leaders. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us on this little Friday. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. Fung, our producer, is in studio. So kind of, you know, going, switching back and forth here from light to serious and now back to uh, something, you know, a, a story that's completely empowering. Uh, and I love telling these stories both on the radio and the television show in which our next guest has been uh, a guest on the television show. Um, I'd like to introduce you to Natalie Horta, uh, who has an LGBT gym, and I believe it's the one of the first and only LGBTQ gyms out there. Uh, but she's got an incredible story. So let's welcome Natalie to the program. Natalie, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me, Michelle. It's been a couple years since uh, we've last talked, and I think, you know, when we when we spoke, um, you had just started the gym, right? Um. A little when bit. When I spoke, I was in about, I was in, I had just started year three with the gym. We're now five and a half years in. Okay. Before we get into the year five and a half, um, because I'm sure of it that there's a lot of positive things, I let's take it a step, a step back and talk about year one, which uh, I don't think I had the chance to even ask you about. Uh, maybe let's even go way back, you know, and, and, and start from. You, your experience, your coming out, and your your whole story. 
Um, well, yeah, we're taking it way back. Yeah. Coming up to that. <laughs> not coming up, sorry. Um, well, I'm originally from Southern California. I grew up in Orange County um, to two Latino immigrant parents, and I had the unique experience of growing up with nine siblings, which I'm the eighth out of the ten kids in our family. Um, and I grew up pretty, you know, traditional uh, Mexican Catholic family. And I came out, my, well, first I came out to my siblings um, when I was a freshman in college. And then about a year later, um, my dad asked me what was going on because he, he basically woke me up and was like, I know you have a girlfriend. And uh, that's basically how I ended up coming out to my parents. I told him about it that morning and then later on I told my, my family or my mom at that point. And then what was really helpful was that since my siblings already knew, they were able to intervene and kind of be the mediators between me and my parents to kind of help their, you know, their kind of own coming out process. And, you know, fast forward, uh, you know, 15 years now, uh, and I've never thought, you know, I'd be where I am with my family in terms of my sexuality. They're 100% supportive of both my lifestyle as well as, as the business. Um, I had the pleasure of bringing my fiancé on our last family trip where we went to, like, not, like, a big Mexican city, but like a little small, little, you know, village, small town wow. um, with my fiance and they, they, uh, you know, my whole family, my aunts and uncles, cousins, all got to meet her and really embraced her. And they were all there when I proposed at our five year anniversary party this year. And I was pretty excited about, um, <laughs> that's a lot you know, where, yeah, it's, uh, it took a lot of conversations to get here, but, um, well worth it. So from your perspective, because we, we talk about this a little bit um, in terms of being Mexican and being queer or LGBTQI, what do you think is the, the hardest thing as, as a uh, as a Mexican-American when you're coming out to your parents? Like, why is it so hard for them in the first place? Um, well, I think, you know, in my case, a lot of it was, was religion. Uh, we were definitely raised in the Catholic Church. Mm. Uh but for me specifically, what I was more concerned about was my, like how my parents were going to handle that socially, um, like amongst, you know, other family members. And I remember this past year when we went on that family trip, um, I talked to my mom about two things that I was concerned about. One of them, I was like, you know, like my experience traveling internationally is a lot, a lot different because I have to consider different factors. You know, I'm not only queer, but I present masculine, and that that itself can put me at different risk. So, is this, you know, is it safe for me to go there? Is it safe for me to be out there? Is it safe for me to be my partner there? And I think that's one thing that she never really thought about. She was like, "Well, life is different for you because you have this different dynamic." Um, and the second, I was like, "You know, are you ready for me to walk around in our little?" town with my partner, like, how do you feel about this? You know, like my aunts and uncles, my cousins, you know, your lifelong childhood friends are going to be there. They're obviously going to be exposed to this. And I remember just really being concerned um, for that um, and for my, my parents, um, you know, kind of being now in this social dynamic and my sexuality really, really literally hitting home for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's... Um... Thank you for sharing that. It's so important for for a lot of people who might be uh, 
going through something similar that you went through years ago. And then, you know, just overcoming the fear of coming out to being accepted to then jumping into another type of fear, which is starting your own business. Uh, I know I know that fear very well. It's, it's like this world of the unknowns. Tell us about, you know, just kind of what made you want to start your, your gym and kind of also personalizing that to you being a, a gay woman. Um, yeah, thanks for acknowledging, like, the fear component of it because, um, you know, with my business being such a niche business, there's definitely that same sense of um, fear of rejection. You know, like, is the marketplace really going to welcome uh, a business niche in the way that I'm planning to niche mine or at that point was planning to niche mine? Um, so that was definitely a concern of mine. Um, and so essentially how I first thought of the idea was just through my own experience I've grown up as an athlete my entire life and really enjoyed my time in the gym. However, I noticed that as my sexuality evolved, um, my experience at the gym started to change as well for, uh, for the negative. And then furthermore, as my gender expression started to change um, and I was starting to present more masculine, um, I really noticed a big change in my gym experience. And at that point, I just really figured I couldn't be the only queer uh, going through this experience at the gym. You know, my objective was to go in there and work out and stay healthy, but yet I had to take into consideration all these other factors around my sexuality and my gender expression. Um, so that's really where I, I got the idea for this uh, for this gym. Um, and in the beginning, there was definitely uh, some concerns. Uh, I remember hiring a business coach who was really pushing me not to niche uh, to the queer community. Um, he was saying, he's like, just the market's not there. I had other people tell me there's um, the economy and the queer community isn't strong enough to support that kind of model. Um, and I just went ahead and did it anyway just because in my gut, uh, I just I couldn't ignore that gut feeling that there was something special, like special opportunity people after. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to ask you now, I mean, we're running out of time and I want to make sure our listeners also hear the incredible news. I mean, five years later and from that fear of starting your own business, where's the business now? So yeah, we've been in business five and a half years and the business is really at the tipping point. Um, I would say the first three years is just trial and error and getting my butt kicked pretty much on a regular basis. Year four was more about uh, rebuilding and, and pivoting, and year five uh, was about kind of, you know, we clean up our act, we, we kind of have a clear idea of what we're doing, and the last couple of six months has really been about feeling. Uh, I just graduated uh, Latino Entrepreneurship uh, Program at Stanford that's focused on scaling Latino-owned businesses, and that's kind of where we're at. We're hoping in the next year to open our second location. Uh, here in the Bay Area, and just the, the organic growth that's happened um, for me really solidifies that this is just the beginning for the gym. Natalie, thank you so much for joining us here today, and for everyone who's tuning in and you you hear the uh, courage and strength from Natalie, and you're motivated and empowered to go check out the gym, make sure you check out the perfect sidekick. Thanks again, Natalie. Thank you, Michelle. Thanks for having me. 
All right, that brings us to the end of the show. Thank you so much for joining us here today. We'll catch you tomorrow at 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. You'll get John Zipper of the Commonwealth Club with his week-to-week political roundtable talk. See you later. Thank you.